1: Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. I'm working with COVID patients and I somehow or missed the memo to be afraid of them or this or that it's going to be a dire uh, earth uh, life shattering event, even though I in one of the high risk groups. I don't know. I missed that memo. But I'm sure a lot of other people are concerned about this virus and you know what we can do. Is this something to be scared of? Is this something that with proper precautions, we'll be okay? My theory is that if we build our immunity up, uh, that gives us a best chance. And my theory also includes if there's a lot of other strains such as toxins and EMF, 5G, glyphosate, our body would be focused on dealing with those and might not have enough juice for the virus. So we have somebody today speaking who is knowledgeable in this area and can give us a lot of help on um, what do we do in the days of the coronavirus. So Stephen Fox is here, and he's an organic chemist who's been hacking his health for decades. One hack was overcoming his severe stage fright, which enabled him to do public speaking engagements and TV appearances, including Larry King Live. He has a broad knowledge of biochemistry, neurochemistry, nutrition, metabolism, and nanotechnology. He's also a nutritional consultant, formulation consultant, author, editor, public speaker, inventor, and an expert witness. He is a model. Honorator and blogger for Project Wellbeing, folks, you can find that at www.projectwellbeing.com. He's the chief chemist at E-Cycle Systems, the executive director of Cognitive Enhancement Research Institute, that is abbreviated as C-E-R-I, and he's the co-founder and chief science officer of the Nanopolymer Systems Corporations. He has numerous publications and is. And in this radio host's opinion, he's the most brilliant man that I've encountered. He's just a genius. So welcome,
0: Steve. Glad to be here.
1: Uh, You know, I mean, uh, it seems that our whole environment is engendering an environment of fear. I mean, there's enough fear going on with people worried about economic security, losing their jobs. How do they pay their rent? How do they pay their mortgage? How do they keep their life safe? So much fear going on. So uh, we're looking to some, you know, something so we can empower ourselves to maximize our chance for health. So, uh, what do you suggest?
0: Well, um, first of all, let me say um, I'm not particularly in a state of fear about any of this. I think the coronavirus is maybe um, two or three times more in terms of the oxidative stress that it causes people than, let's say, the regular flu, maybe two times the the uh, uh, more virulent flus, and a lot of people are catching the coronavirus and not knowing it because their body's um, oxidation-reduction um, stabilization systems are robust, and that doesn't It's not the case when we are dealing with somebody who's elderly or somebody who's um, in a nursing home where they can't get out into the sunlight and get vitamin D, which is protective, and they're not supplemented with selenium. They're eating regular processed food, which is low in selenium, and they're not allowed to take vitamin C or they're not administered vitamin C by their medical director. So there's a lot of risk factors that... If we're on our own, we can adopt them to minimize our risks. And, uh, you know, if you're in a hospital or if you're in a nursing home, you don't have that kind of freedom to take steps to protect yourself.
1: Wow. Yeah, I know of one an NFL football player who had been in hospice with HIV and cancer and they were just waiting for him to die. He adopted a very healthy diet and was jogging every day. Unfortunately, he couldn't leave because they had signed his death certificate. His name is Tony. We made a movie about this, but YouTube censored it. They said it was spam. So, yeah, I mean, healthy diet and taking care of ourselves certainly is the first step. So can you be, give us some more specifics?
0: Yeah, so when people die from coronavirus, it's because of oxidative stress. There's, uh, we have an antioxidant defense system, and at the bottom of that system, the foundation of our antioxidant defense system is our redox buffering system. And this is um, an energy-fueled process where the body's energy is tapped between when it's produced and, and as fuel and when it's actually produced. Um, converted into ATP for driving enzymes, the energy is tapped early in the process, and it recycles our antioxidants. So it's it's a, an energy-driven process that depends on our metabolism, and as we get old, we lose metabolism. If we are, have diabetes or prediabetes, we lose metabolism. They have all kinds of pre-existing conditions that limit our metabolism, and vitamin D is one of them. Selenium is one of them. Vitamin C is one of them. And so the idea is that this, you know, if you look at the sun as a source of heat, um, that you need to protect yourself from it. An umbrella does fine as long as the ambient temperature is okay, you know, and it's just intercepting the rays of the sun, but the, the... the environment you're in if you're in California it might be 70 degrees and beautiful outside and if you're in Arizona it might be 105 115 in the shade uh, that's too too hot for most people and they need we need a refrigerator and that's what our redox defense system is it's a refrigerator it actually cools us off and the coronavirus infection is like sunlight it's a heat source it's it's raising the temperature causing oxidative stress Our immune system is responding, and we need that refrigerator to run at high speed, even higher speed than normal, to keep us from burning, from burning out, from burning up. And um, once we know that, we can just feed that system and survive the coronavirus um, quite gracefully.
1: So what I hear you saying is that, you know, as many other guests on the show said, that oxidative stress along with inflammation, you know, mitochondrial dysfunction, but all these things interact with each other. So oxidative stress is one of the main contributors to a disease path or deteriorating health. I mean, Thomas Levy also says the same thing. He'll be on sometimes, I'll put that, that's going to be on the show soon. But so oxidative stress is a main, one of the main things that we have to protect against, and there are ways that we can do that. Is that correct?
0: That's right. That's actually what kills us is when our redox defense system fails, and so, we know what that is. We know the nutritional pathways involved. We know the specific antioxidants that are involved. We know the recycling mechanisms. We know what coenzymes are involved in this process, so there's no re- neat reason that anybody has to die if you know how to strengthen that system sufficiently. and. You know, this has been put into practice. I know people who have been working on this personally. I know known, known people who have been working on it for 40 years. And some of them say they've never lost a patient using this protocol.
1: I've heard the same thing, like Dr. Brownstein, seen who was using, I guess, Uh, hyperbaric oxygen and some people who are using ozone they're saying the same thing but they seem to be shut down but I also just for the layman uh, this oxidative stress is like when you have a nail and you and it rusts and it just kind of gets non-functioning so that's what my perception of oxidative stress is but if we know all this it sounds like we've got a lot of tools to counteract it
0: and they're over the counter you can go out to your health food store, you can go online, you can order a kilogram of vitamin C for maybe thirty, forty bucks, and that's enough to keep you and your loved ones from dying from coronavirus. Now, it's not specifically vitamin C in every case as a limiting factor. You know, vitamin C recycles based on the amount of glutathione that you have in your body, which is based on sulfur chemistry and the glutathione level is defended by selenium. And some people have very low levels of selenium. There are a lot of people walking around with cold hands and feet all the time and with a low body temperature and low pulse rate who have, you know, hypometabolism. That's a risk factor. And so vitamin C doesn't solve the, the risk factor issues that have nothing to do with vitamin C. They're, they're separate risk factors. And so... You, in order to be really competent about it in a, in a medical setting, you need to know what each person's spectrum of risk factors are in order to intervene most effectively. But knowing that humans don't make vitamin C and all other mammals do, that's the, the pivot point that makes vitamin C the star of the show.
1: It certainly sounds like the star of the show, but my my perception is this disease. Uh, it's like we're exploring an elephant, and we're looking at different parts, and we're finding out different things. Some people are talking about altitude sickness, which means the ventilators is a really bad a bad thing. I mean, Bird Freenlander said you need some CO two in that. Other people are talking about the hemoglobin. Uh, going amok and resulting in high levels of ferritin, which is uh, uh, oxidant, which will cause oxidative stress. I mean, there's all sorts of theories. So certainly, uh, well, as you're saying, in, uh, vitamin C will help a lot of people, but you can't predict it will help everybody because you don't know their nutritional or metabolic status. Is that correct? Right.
0: But it's whenever you have a redox crisis, a re- oxidation reduction crisis, it's the vitamin C that tanks first. So you've got you know, selenium reducing glutathione, you've got glutathione reducing vitamin C. Well, um, there are proteins in your body that store selenium. There are proteins, there's, there's sulfur amino acids in our body, you can make more glutathione, but you can't make more vitamin C. So when you're dealing with the vitamin C part of the redox defense system, the redox buffering system, how do we, How do you handle all this oxidation and buffer it safely? Um, the vitamin C is the part that crashes and causes us to die nine times out of ten. So if there's one thing, if you're limited to just one thing, it's got to be vitamin C. But you can do vitamin C with selenium. You can vitamin C with vitamin D. You can do vitamin C with zinc. You can do vitamin C with glutathione. So... But vitamin C comes down to the core because humans don't make vitamin C, and humans have less than one percent of the vitamin C when you're healthy. That your dog, your pet dog, cat, um, your your you know farm goat, sheep, you know cow, um, less than one percent. So that's the part that crashes first. So if we're
1: in a health food store and we can only afford one item, vitamin C, we would get over uh, glutathione or selenium or anything, and maybe some vitamin D. But vitamin C sounds like the first place to go.
0: Well, it's certainly the first place to go if you only are going to spend money on one thing. But it's also this is the thing that happens during the infection. So, you know, there's all kinds of literature out there about how vitamin D is um, negatively associated. Well, no, it's the higher your vitamin D, the higher you survive coronavirus. But there's not as much information saying that vitamin D is therapeutic, that if you take vitamin D during an infection, you're going to be more likely to survive. But there's massive amount of vitamin C research that's shown that if you give vitamin C during burns, you give vitamin C during radiation poisoning, you give vitamin C during uh, uh, influenza infections, you give vitamin C during corona infections, uh, people survive way higher. So, you know, I think vitamin C is the thing that you'd want to do when you're infected. And selenium and vitamin D would be things that would be possibly more effective as preventive strategies where you build your vitamin D level up and you build your selenium level up in preparation for that infection.
1: Okay, so it sounds like vitamin C has been well studied and that this could help us a lot. Aren't the Chinese using IV vitamin C in some of the hospitals in New York as well?
0: Yes, and they're they're leading the world in terms of least mortality.
1: Then why is the CEO of YouTube saying that she intends to uh, censor any information on vitamin C and turmeric? Why would she say such a thing?
0: Um, Well, I would say uh, stupidity and ignorance, but I know she's not um, stupid. Um, So it has to be ignorance and... um, listening to the wrong people. Um, there's a massive amount of political influence coming in on this issue. So on the, the main message is there's no cure, which is totally false. Um, you can drop the death rate from coronavirus as close to zero as you want as long as you understand you're defending the redox buffering system and vitamin C is the weak link in the redox buffering chain of command. And so how do you reconcile the public message that there's no cure when there is a cure and that the public message is backed up by FBI raids on doctors' offices that are using vitamin C intravenously and character assassination of doctors who've gone public and um, requests from official organizations to withdraw papers that um, deal with vitamin C? So one of the most beneficial things that has happened to crony science in the last 50 years has been the fact that coronavirus has caused all the coronavirus publications to bypass peer review. And so we're not having that peer review getting in the way of research coming out. Research is available for people before it's peer reviewed and before the editors of the journal decide to publish it or not publish it. So the censorship and the restraint of of um, behavior in the scientific community is um, at the lowest point it's been, and so the quality of the information is the highest that it's been.
1: Wow. Well, I'd like to make a plug here, because my film, The Big Secret, was censored by Congressman Adam Schiff, I just talked about nutrition with some of the leading experts in the world, but he had Jeff Bezos take it off Amazon Prime. But my agent put it on Vimeo, folks. You can see it there, the big secret. But this censorship of health information that empowers the individual to help his own health and to take matters in his own hands and control his destiny befuddles me.
0: Well, it does, but, you know, it's important to realize that 90% 90% of those people who are censoring and are trying to prevent you from wasting your money and hurting yourself, um, they're not really your enemy because they really believe what they're doing and they believe that nutrition is a waste and that any, you're just peeing the vitamins into the sewer and they're not doing anything, even though you pee the drugs that they support into the sewer as well. So, you know, there's, a, there's an ideological... Um, thing that's kind of like you know religious in nature where it's not about the facts it's about the, the world view that people are using to, to judge facts and they're like the flat earth Catholics you know trying to fight the idea that the earth is round and calling it heresy and saying you know it's not true because the Pope said it's a lie and it's not true because the research that you've been publishing hasn't been peer reviewed by priests
1: Wow. Well, they're doing studies in China now. Are they doing controlled studies with IV vitamin C?
0: Well, nobody knows what's going on in China. I mean, China is shut down in so many ways that, um, you know, there are publications saying that there are three studies, double-blind studies, going on in China with coronavirus. Um, one study was done and published, but one study doesn't change anybody's mind, Um and I don't even think four studies, when all of them are done, and they all show the same results, that's not going to shut down the CDC and the and, uh, NIH and the World Health, World Health Organization. They are totally committed to this anti-vitamin C campaign. Um, it is the linchpin of their um, public policy and promotion. So um, they're not going to change. So my suggestion for people is. And don't listen to them. Bypass them. Do an end run around them. Buy the vitamin C on your own. Um, I've got a protocol where you can take vitamin C at home in a way that gives you n- near-medium-dose IV effects. So in China, they're using 24 grams every 24 hours, 6 grams four times a day by IV. And in the hospitals in New York and other places in the country, they're using um, 3 grams four times a day for twelve gram doses. Well, twelve to twenty four grams is stuff that you can do orally. And so all you need to is follow this protocol where you're timing the the dose of vitamin C to to shorter and shorter periods of time to maximize your dose so that you get you get the full advantage of your body's thirst for vitamin C. And as you get sicker, your thirst rises and your, your ability to absorb vitamin C. So if you're healthy, inhale, 6 grams might give you diarrhea. But if you've got coronavirus, 6 grams is nothing. Your body is still thirsty after you feed it 6 grams. So you just start off, you know, doing 1 gram every 2 hours, and then you do 1 gram every hour and a half, and then 1 gram every 50 minutes and 40 minutes and 30 minutes. And, and by just timing these doses... Uh, your your basic investment is a kitchen timer and vitamin C.
1: Okay, so let me see if I can understand your protocol. So pre-infection, pre-symptoms, how much vitamin C would you recommend per day? And when you have symptoms, what do you recommend? And when you think you've actually got the virus, what do you recommend?
0: Well, I take um, two to four grams a day, which puts me at a at about 10% of the mammal dose of vitamin C. So I'm looking out and I'm seeing cats and dogs, I'm seeing goats, horses, and pigs, I'm seeing all these animals in the world. And with the exception of a few that don't make vitamin C, they produce roughly 10 or 20 grams a day for an animal of our size. So I'm looking at that as kind of the reference standard for what animals can handle with vitamin C. And when a cat gets sick, you know, feline leukemia virus or something like that, um, uh, or um, there's a, um, uh, a parasite on board or some kind of bacterial infection, the animal will make twice as much vitamin C. So you're talking 20 to 40 grams when they 're ill, and so I 'm using those kinds of figures now, the IVs that they're doing in the hospitals are between twelve and, and twenty four grams. Well, you know, twelve is close to the bottom end of the normal range, and twenty four is getting up into the bottom end of the of the sick mammal um, dose so Let's, let's go for that kind of thing. And so when, you're, when I pick, you know, two to four grams a day, two grams normally, for, four grams when I'm, you know, trying to protect myself from exposure, I run across somebody in my house has a virus, for example. Um, I'll bump it up to four grams. And and, that, and I, I don't ever have diarrhea. I don't ever have a stool effect because that's less than my absorption of vitamin C, my maximum absorption of vitamin C. That's about ten percent of what a normal mammal would make. I'm in that kind of level, halfway between less than one percent and you know one hundred percent. I'm at about ten percent. And but when I get sick, if if I start, if I go from four grams, I go to six grams, I go to eight grams, and if I have a stool loosening effect, I stop. And then you know to the next dose, I do a little bit more, you know, and and. At some point, when I'm, if I'm getting sicker and sicker, if I have the coronavirus, on board, I'm going to get very, very sick, I'm going to end up taking 20, 30, 40 grams a day. And my bowel will tell me. You know, when it loosens, that means I'm taking too much. And if it's not loose enough, it means I need to bump the dose. So I'm just continually bumping it higher and higher and higher as my body gets thirstier and thirstier for vitamin C. And then once the virus is handled... My dose will start to drop, and I'll I'll go from, let's say, 24 grams down to 20, down to 18, and and I'll still be having this loosening loosening bowel effect and have to drop my dose lower and lower until I get down to that 2 to 4 grams a day that doesn't give me diarrhea.
1: Okay, and what other things is vitamin C good for? I mean, since oxidative stress is behind most chronic diseases and illnesses we can think of, it sounds like it should be good for everything. So what else can it help us with? It is because
0: we don't make it. And so, you know, vitamin C is lower in us than other mammals. And so we have vitamin C deficiency diseases. You know, gorillas, for example, in U.S. zoos develop heart disease because they're fed human food. Well, in the wild, in Africa, they don't have heart disease at all. So there is something missing in the way... You know, gorillas in zoos versus gorillas in the wild, and the ant. And one of those is vitamin C. And gorillas get you know a fraction of a gram here in zoos, and they get maybe six to ten grams a day in the wild. Great. So, yeah, the whole idea of vitamin C being the pivot point gives us a central focus of things. So, you know, when you have an infection. You know, you've got a fever, your immune system is going nuts, your immune system is producing hydroxyl radicals and superoxide anions and stuff. It's trying to kill um, everything that's, that's uh, foreign in your body. And your, your redox defense system, your, your buffering system has to maintain a minimum degree of control of that oxidative stress in order for your immune system to stay in bounds. So, if you lose control of that, what happens? Your immune system goes into hyperdrive, and you get all these cytokines that get sent out. There's no reference point, so it looks like everything is out of control, and the immune system goes into this you know massive overresponse, and we call that a cytokine storm. And so this is what's happening. It's you know in coronavirus deaths, it's often cited as cause of death. You know well, vitamin C shuts down the cytokine storm. Selenium shuts it down. Vitamin D shuts it down. So this is all known by scientists, but somehow our public health authorities are determined not to know this and not to acknowledge it. And not only do they not officially acknowledge it, they discipline all of their people who talk about it openly.
1: Wow. Wow. It's easy not to know about it because the one hour of nutrition I had in medical school, I slept through it. So it's easy not to know about it.
0: Well, this is also not known by most biologists. I mean, people understand you know, glutathione and, and the role that glutathione plays in cellular redox defense, but they don't understand the dynamics of it and the context of looking at it on a systematic level or a systems systems level of how does the vitamin C dynamic work in animals that can make their vitamin C, they go into hyperdrive. They make more vitamin C when they get sick. Their bodies know that they're wired to make more vitamin C. But humans can't do that. So instead of having less than 1%, when we're sick, we have less than half a percent of the vitamin C that other mammals do. So, it's very easy to buy vitamin C. It's very easy to take it. It's very easy to have a kitchen timer where you you set it, and every time the beeper goes off, it's not like you have to measure out your vitamin C and remember what the last dose is. You just take the same dose every time. So. All of the mental confusion that you might have and the brain fog from not sleeping well and and having a high fever and uh, having your dopamine out of control and all these kinds of secondary effects that interfere with people's good judgment when they're sick. That all goes away with the kitchen timer. It beeps. You take your dose. It beeps. You take your dose. That's the, the simplest kind of a thing. And even if you know you're just taking care of a family member who who may not be able to follow that kind of a protocol, it's it's you don't even need to be a high school graduate to follow a kitchen timer.
1: Well. Okay. Now, uh, people are being very alarmed by children seemingly healthy getting this disease. Is that mainly the cytokine storm, which can be ameliorated with vitamin C? Or what's, is it Kawasaki's? Or, I mean, I read one place that the highest risk factor is older folks. Well, we can ex- come up with several explanations. Uh, they've got multiple diseases, certain medications, increase. Uh, upregulate the virus, and they're likely to be on these medications. And then the second risk factor I read in one article is obese children. So what's going on with these kids, seemingly innocent, uh, ostensibly healthy kids succumbing to this virus? Uh,
0: They're not healthy. I mean, you know, it's like an iceberg. You know, you can look at somebody and say, you're old. That's the top of the iceberg that's sticking out of the ocean. You can look at somebody who's got diabetes and they're injecting themselves with insulin or taking an in, a transdermal insulin-like you know, drug. You can say, oh, well, that's, that's a pre-existing condition. It's the this part of the iceberg that's sticking out. But there's vitamin D deficiency that's a risk factor. There's vitamin C insufficiency. There's low metabolic rate. How many people in the world have cold hands and feet in a below normal body temperature? Sixty percent, forty percent—it's a major part of the population, and yet it's considered healthy. So I can just say that you know we've been, you know, abandoning—we've been distancing ourselves from Mother Nature for so long. Processed foods and um, light—you know, not going to sleep at and rising at dawn and dusk, and staying away from the sun. And I mean, we just—it's like she gets no respect, and. And kids are not immune to that kind of a thing. Parents don't want their kids to go outside because it's dangerous. You know, they they have this fear mentality. And and they don't want their kids to um, eat food that hasn't been washed and where they haven't washed their hands. You know, kids that grow up on farms are intrinsically healthier than kids that grow up in urban environments because the kids on the farms get exposed to bugs all the time. They're just their immune system is learning and learning and learning and learning, and kids in urban environments, their mothers make them you know sterilize their hands on a regular basis. They can't go out. They can't get as much sun. Um, They're they're living in a bubble, and we have the gall to say uh, that these kids are healthy. They're not healthy. We're not healthy, you know. And it's time to recognize that what coronavirus is doing is it's exposing those hidden um, aspects of the iceberg.
1: Wow. I certainly want to jump onto this topic because, I mean, autism is mushroom from one out of 10,000 to, I mean, I just read something somewhere, it's one out of 28 somewhere in the South, boys, uh, one, of the kids have a developmental disease. ADHD came out of nowhere and is rampant. Um,
0: those are all redox-related uh, that, conditions. Yeah,
1: exacerbated
0: by which make the redox worse, yeah. Yeah, so if you have a compromised redox system, you're more likely to react badly to, let's say, a vaccination or um, a, a, a mercury um, a, you know skin treatment to sterilize when you when you skin your knee um, you know there all of these things that happen in a kid's life that are um an, in, an oxidative insult um the the immune system if the redox defense system is weak um there there's a bigger challenge that's involved in into the body and in in um, in australia in the United states. The the real resistance to vitamin C came when Linus Pauling published his book, Vitamin C and the Common Cold, where he claimed that vitamin C diminished the cold. Well, at the time, you know, the government said that's not true. There's no evidence of it, even though there was. And they falsified some research to prove that it wasn't. and, And so the United States became entrenched against vitamin C during that particular phase. Well, in Australia... It was Archie Calicorinos who found these aboriginal kids that were on government support, and they were eating white bread and, and you know, fruit jam. And all their babies were, um, had low vitamin C and the adults, too. And the, the, the public health people would come in, uh, you know, once or twice a year, whenever their schedule was, and they'd vaccinate all these kids. And half of them were dying. Fifty percent infant mortality rate. And the public health people didn't know about it. They didn't do any follow-up with this. And when Calicarino started giving them vitamin C injections the day after their vaccinations, he never lost another infant for the entire year that he did this. And then he published this. And the Australian public health people never forgave vitamin C for that insult to them.
1: Are you saying that kids that got vaccines, that their health was compromised and they did worse?
0: They died, 50% infant mortality, because there was no vitamin C in their diet. They were on white flour and, and jam, and when they were being breastfed, their mothers were acutely vitamin C deficient. So um, anytime you you're talking about recycling your antioxidants, um, this is the redox the buffering system that's recycling all your antioxidants. Well, if you don't have any antioxidants to recycle, how is it going to do it? Well, there's one way that, to do it, which is to burn fat instead of burning sugar. If you're on a high-carb diet, you're, you know, you're relying upon sugar um, as your primary fuel. Well, when you eat a lot of sugar, you get insulin resistance, and that sabotages your energy and it sabotages your redox recycling well, if you go into fat burning mode, all of a sudden you start recycling uh, vitamin C much, much more efficiently. And but if you're on a high carb diet, you can't do that. You go into a hospital, they put you on an IV drip to hydrate you. They put five percent uh, glucose in the drip. All of a sudden, you can't burn fat and you can't recycle your vitamin C. So That's this very is important. all known. Pardon.
1: Yeah. It's very important about sugar because it's highly inflammatory. When you get insulin resistance, high levels of insulin and it doesn't work as effectively, it's very inflammatory which leads to oxidative stress. Uh, which is what we're talking about contributing to most major diseases. Now, also sugar, for one molecule of sugar, I've heard that it takes like over 20 molecules of magnesium, so we're depleting our nutrients, which are needed for so many reactions in the body. But I'd also like to comment, as I read one article, that the age of optimal health for us is at age 27, and then it starts going down. I was hoping it wouldn't start going down until 90 or something, but 27, the maximum health, and one out of six kids has a developmental disease, and like almost 50% of our kids have a chronic disease. It used to be 18%. I mean, the statistics are there that our kids are very unhealthy. I mean, they're so much more vulnerable to everything that we're doing wrong that this is concerning. I mean, what you're saying makes sense, Steve. Mm Mm-hmm
0: it's very concerning and we're we're also vaccination is an insult to the redox buffering system um and we're now following a policy where we're vaccinating um you know what is it uh 72 20-some.
1: vaccines by the age of 18
0: no but it's yeah but it's the the, the issue is by the age of 2 because from birth to two years of age, our brains are going through a major restructuring process, where half of the neurons in the human brain die and are absorbed to feed the ones that that live, and so the brain is, in a sense, pruning itself and and composting all the the, the pruning that's done, and then refertilizing the yard with the with your composted you know um, clippings. And that's, that goes on from birth to two years of age. And so it's the vaccinations during that time that affect the health of the development of the central nervous system. So beyond okay. two years of age, your brain is kind of hardwired. It is going to go through, you know, um, adrenarche and puberty and, and reach adulthood. And it's going to go through these re restructuring phases at several points in life. But from birth to two years of age, you're... You're just you're in this special development stage where your brain is incredibly sensitive to any kind of negative input.
1: Wow. But in California, we've got Senator Pond saying that every kid's got to be vaccinated and the very, very vulnerable that, you know, have had trouble with previous vaccines. They don't have a choice.
0: Well, it's really interesting when they say, well, there's no double-blind, you know, placebo-controlled studies of vitamin C, which isn't true, but they say it. And yet, vaccines have never been subjected to placebo-controlled double-blind studies. It's wow. really ironic.
1: Wow. I don't know what's going on here.
0: But... It's political. It's a It's a worldview. The idea that the world is flat is dying, you know, and the public health people are defending it left and right and and putting people, arresting people and and censoring YouTube and Facebook, and they're just frantic to keep their um, ideology um, alive and to stay in power. And just like the Catholic Church went through its um, loss of power when um, their um, Earth-centric view of the world was changed, and then their um, uh, Earth is Flat model fell, or before, um, fell. Um, you know, public health policy is likely to collapse under this load. People are too afraid to, of, of the coronavirus to accept that there is no cure when there is a cure. I mean, this is just too much, um, uh, uh, I don't know, cognitive dissonance. Um, for people to accept. So as long as people know that there's a, a, a cure out there and they can go and bypass the, the government's, you know, flatterer theory, um, uh, you know, people will polarize against the public health um, view of things.
1: I don't know why we can't work together, but I'm very concerned by Facebook, Google, and YouTube and censoring information that suggests the world might not be flat.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's all part of the big business cycle in the age of bureaucracy. That you know everything degenerates into a question of appearances rather than reality. Well, you know, I'm a scientist. I I want reality. Um, I want to know what my options are, and I want to optimize things. And the selenium that I take that cuts my COVID risk in half cost me one penny a month. I mean, that is so absurdly cheap. There's no reason why anybody shouldn't be able to have selenium supplementation. And in terms of uh, the amount of money spent on welfare programs and and, um, vaccination programs and stuff like that, selenium, you could add selenium to that and they wouldn't even notice the bump in their budgets.
1: So, Will one or two Brazil nuts a day uh, give you that selenium protection? Well, maybe.
0: I mean, one is enough if you get a Brazil nut that's grown in the Amazonas region. Um, yeah, it's a two hundred micrograms per Brazil nut. But if you ate six of them, which is recommended, it would be twelve hundred units. That's four times what some experts say is the top end dose of selenium that you should eat. Where do you know? I mean, how? If you buy some Brazil nuts, how do you know where they're grown? You don't. Mm. And the same thing applies to um, nuts in Africa that the um, Native Africans use culturally. They harvest all these selenium nuts, and they make selenium butter, like peanut butter, and then they eat a small amount of it per day. And most of these people who do this are immune to Ebola virus which is another one of those scary ones that they say there's no cure for.
1: Well, Dr. Rowan cured everybody he treated with his ozone. So well, ozone space.
0: has the ability to improve the recycling rate because ozone is a source of oxygen. So ozone puts oxygen into the deep tissues, so you make more energy. Your body's energy systems heal themselves, and you're able, like with burning fat, you're able to recycle your vitamin C more efficiently. I mean, some of these Arctic explorers, some of the oldest literature that you can get about medicine were the, the, these you know, reports about these uh, uh, explorers looking for the North Pole. They left England with all their white processed flour foods, and, and uh, they went you know, by ship up as far as they could go, and then they got onto sleds, and they went in, and boom, a storm stranded them. So here they are, stuck for an entire winter, unable to move, living in igloos, running out of their food. They had scurvy, their teeth were loose, some of their teeth had fallen out, and they run out of their food, and the the native Inuit give them some blubber, and they're desperate enough to eat it, and their scurvy goes away. They're eating fat, and their vitamin C levels stabilize, and, and, and it's because... Fat-burning recycles the antioxidants better than carb-burning when you're insulin-resistant. So all of a sudden, these these Arctic explorers eating fat are now in ketosis, and their vitamin C levels are fine. Even though their vitamin C intake is as close to zero as you can get, they're not having vitamin C deficiency problems. So um, this is not just about vitamin C intake. I mean, vitamin C intake is easier than getting into ketosis and burning fat. That's a much more complicated process. And I think that, you know, when you're faced with trying to educate people, you know, you need to, the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. You know, how do you make it as simple as possible? And doing vitamin C with a kitchen timer, that's just the essence of simplicity, you just make a judgment. Do I have a, a stool loosening effect or not? And if you do, you increase the time, and if you don't, you decrease the time. I mean, how simple can you get?
1: Wow. So it sounds like ketogenic diet is something that can help us, and we've got many podcasts on that. And, well, that's uh, part
0: of the natural antiviral de- defense mechanism. I mean, what happens when you get infected and you run a fever? You stop eating. True. Yeah. so you go into ketosis, <laughs> fever-induced well, ketosis, but it's still fat-burning. It's still in re- improving the recycling of your vitamin C. It's strengthening the depth of your redox buffering system.
1: Now, what do you attribute the different intensity with which um, coronavirus has hit different areas? I'm, I'm working in San Francisco. We flatten the curve. I work in the emergency room. Nobody's excited about anything there. Yeah, mild pace. But New York and Italy, extremely challenged. So, I mean, some people postulate, did studies that's connected with pollution. I saw an article about 5G, which is going to be really hard to tease out, folks, because they're beaming satellites down on us, and who knows what's going on where. But what do you attribute the different intensities of how this virus is hitting us and overwhelming some places?
0: Well, it's all about those hidden preexisting conditions. And, um, you know, if you have a culture like in the United States where vitamin D and, and tanning is fine, you're going to have, and, and you're, the, the entire bread basket of the United States for growing wheat is, uh, you know, between the, uh, the northern plain states, between the Rocky Mountains and, and the Mississippi River, There's massive levels of selenium there, which is distributed all over the United States uh, for food. And so the Pacific Northwest, the Atlantic Northeast, and Michigan, they're eating weight from South Dakota and Iowa, and they're maintaining some degree of selenium, good selenium status. So each of each region of the world is going to have a different kind of base rock and a different kind of selenium availability, and have different cultural orientations towards sun and vitamin D and vitamin A versus beta-carotene. In the United States, most consumers think that beta-carotene is equal to vitamin A. It's not even close. You know, if you want to save a child's life who's hospitalized with, with measles, You give them massive doses of vitamin A, 400,000 units, when the U.S. government tells us that 10,000 is the top end for tolerability. That's 40 times the dose, and they do it two days in a row, and 68% decrease mortality.
1: But why New York, Uh, lack of selenium? There are studies that connect it with pollution. Why is New York hit? Why Italy?
0: Well, it's an urban area. I mean, it's. I mean, in terms of exposure to sun, I mean, I can't say I know what all these risk factors are. I mean, it's an iceberg. It's below the level of the sea. But I do know that there are factors like that. And also, weather is a factor. The difference between coronavirus in January and coronavirus in, in July is night and day different. I mean, in, in July, you're in the anti-flu season. And... And january you 're in the flu season, and just like influenza is a cold damp virus, um, coronavirus is a cold damp virus, and it shows this massive um, seasonality difference and it 's not just about you know temperature it 's also about vitamin D and how much of it is vitamin D related and how much of it is temperature related. Um, uh, nobody knows. There's speculation to both extremes that temperature is more important and that vitamin D is more important. But the point is, the government's spending no money looking at these kinds of questions. As far as you can look at, in terms of their care of their citizenry, they don't care. They're not spending any money looking at these kinds of things.
1: Well, vitamin but China, D. Yeah. Go ahead. Vitamin D, uh, it seems to be helpful in every single pathway. It seems to help with inflammation, oxidative stress, the gut, any particular pathway you want to look at, um, it it seems to help. You can check out uh, Bill Grant's uh, interview on this radio show. But it seems to help with everything. So it's no surprise that throwing vitamin D, and I think you said at the pre-stages, is something that can help a good preventative
0: Pathway. Yeah, we talked about fat metabolism as being better than carb metabolism in most people who are insulin resistant. Well, um, vitamin D drives metabolism, so does testosterone, uh, but estrogen doesn't. Now, why is male mortality higher than female mortality? Well, males burn their energy um, more capriciously and more constantly, um, whereas, so that's why they don't live as long as women do. So um there's all kinds of bizarre things that happen, so in one of the Chinese studies, they pointed out that having a higher cholesterol i mean talk about heresy higher cholesterol protects you against coronavirus
1: yeah, I've read that. There was a study that low cholesterol—you don't have a car. I mean, uh, you get a higher carbon pool or something like that. I might have it backwards. And that carbon pool, you know, affects the RNA and DNA so that the virus replicates. So that low cholesterol, in one study, was a risk factor for uh, coronavirus virility.
0: That's right. But vitamin, uh, but cholesterol is a precursor for vitamin D. So if you use a statin drug and you're suppressing the, the material that the body uses to make vitamin D, all of a sudden, each hour of sunlight that you collect over the course of a month doesn't count as much. So, you know, but, the, but it's a different thing to, to, to look at, not just a pathology of having low cholesterol, but the fact that it, what's considered excessive cholesterol, let's say 240, which is you know, in the range where most people say, oh, you're at risk of heart disease. Well, your risk of, of, of uh, vitamin D deficiency, coronavirus death, and um, uh, dementia are down at 240. And that's because when you load up on cholesterol, your body is saturated with cholesterol, one of the precursors gets diverted from... Making more cholesterol, which you already have too much of, it gets diverted into making vitamin D. So even in a culture like China or Japan, where people are deliberately avoiding the sun, um, their high cholesterol is diverting enough that whatever light exposure they do get, they get a higher level of efficiency from that light to make vitamin D.
1: Well, cholesterol is also important for cell walls and our other hormones. And studies show that half the people who have heart attacks actually have normal cholesterols. And that some people say 225 is a sweet spot for cholesterol, that we're more likely to die if we're under that than over that. So, and also, we make 80% of our cholesterol. So rather, you know, why are not we just figuring out why we're, we're making whatever we're making? I mean, that kind of mystifies me.
0: Yeah, I did a really fun experiment when I was uh, uh, donating blood at Stanford. Um, I think it was like four times a year at the time. And so I would eat a bunch of eggs and then you know, <laughs> have my blood cholesterol measured and then I would eat no eggs at all and have it measured. And my liver overcompensates for dietary cholesterol. So my cholesterol was um, 180 when I was eating you know, two dozen eggs a week And it was 210 when I wasn't eating any eggs at all.
1: Well, I did a similar I did that three times
0: because it was so counterintuitive. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that people tend to... Uh, assume that everybody works a particular way, and that's not true. I mean, our risk factors are going to be different from person to person, and our survivability is dependent upon knowing what those risk factors are, and being ostriches and sticking our heads in the sand as a matter of public policy and and the benefit of the pharmaceutical industry is not really where people want to play. They want to minimize their risk for something like this. I did a similar...
1: I did a similar study. I had a half pound of cheese. The next day, my cholesterol was 220. The day after that, it was down to 200. But anyway, we have like two and a half minutes left. So would you like to (laughs) summarize and let people know how to get a hold of you? Because you're a wealth of information. You've got so much more information to give. So... Um, well, one of the best the ways
0: that people can keep track of this is I'm writing a book on Patreon, uh, p a t r e o n dot com, which is a artist um, site where um, the the website um, provides a structure for patronage, and anybody who wants to can go on and find an artist and say I'm, I will patronize you ten bucks per video, or in my case one dollar per chapter of the book, and I've just been writing this book of multiple chapters, and it's it's. Um, I think it's, I'm going to be writing it for a whole year. It's that much information, and and uh, the amount of information coming out is just so powerful. Um, and so every time I update the book, everybody who's a patron gets uh, gets a copy of it instantly. And uh, so this is a great way where people can stay in touch with the kind of stuff that I follow.
1: Wow. And, and the final recommendations are eat well eat organic get sunshine get good rest deal with stress effectively vitamin C and vitamin your D. vitamin
0: C <laughs> yes
1: okay well folks now the whole purpose of the show is to empower us so we can do things to improve our health and help the health around us so we want to give this information out and I want to thank Steve for helping us do that empowering us so with this information do, do some research help each other help yourself uh, consult with your clinician your physician uh, give him some information him or her some information as well and above all be well we got the power
0: to change the world thank you for listening